0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Grand Prairie, Texas, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Grand Prairie, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Grand Prairie. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and this is a special class. You know, I don't know if I've taught a class on hard money and private money for real estate investors before, um, ever as kind of like this combined topic. And it's been a long time, I think, since I've taught a class on hard money and private money, and specifically private money. In fact, I pulled out some resources that I had from long time ago that I'm going to share with you today. And hopefully you'll like this. So we're going to get started go over in hard money and private money for real estate investors. So um, in previous classes, I'm going to try to not cover a lot of the old stuff before, but I'm going to tell you that we have entire classes on a lot of these sections. And there's one last section, I think that we've got coming up as well. So the most popular financing options for real estate investors are going to be this kind of group on top, this conventional financing, which I think is like 60 something percent of most of the loans that get out there. FHA, which I think is the next largest group. VA, which is the next largest group after that, I think. And that's around 10 percent of all loans are VA loans. Then we you got USDA and portfolio loans and the portfolio loans are the ones you get usually when you get above 10 loan limit and um, or if you're doing some more unusual things with those. So those are the like kind of like big group of the most common financing things that you're going to do. And we have lots of classes on those. We've got classes on low down payment, no down payment, conventional financing. Um, I've got a whole separate class on DA financing, a whole separate class on the portfolio loans that we just did. And then you've got this whole secondary group of all of the, I don't know if I'd call them miscellaneous, but they're all these additional financing options that we have... uh, Covered in some parts and probably need to cover in other parts, and so there's the whole creative financing family, which over which includes like owner financing, rap financing, or buying a property subject to the existing and um, mortgage loan assumption, the lease option, lease purchase, kind of rent to own family, the agreement for deed, the bond for deed, contract contract for deed, installment land contract, like all those things there. So there's that whole creative financing kind of family of different financing options that are available. And then today we're covering private money and hard money. So we'll go into some detail on those. And then you've got like using home equity lines of credit, life insurance policies, self-directed retirement accounts, uh, buying properties for all cash, and then bringing in partners that are usually using one of these other forms, except you're not qualifying for the loan yourself. So I kind of wanted to include all of those as different options. And I think We've got a class coming up to cover the HELOCs, life insurance, self-directed retirement accounts, cash, and partners ones. Kind of like a, a miscellaneous class to cover those last ones. But today we're going to focus in on private money and hard money. And I'm going to start with hard money. So hard money loans are not usually used when we're doing the nomad strategy where you're buying a property, moving in, living there for a year. You're buying a property as an owner-occupant getting usually low or nothing down owner-occupant financing rates, moving into the property, living there for a year. It's a requirement of the lender. You're going to sign a piece of paper when you get these owner-occupant loans that require you to move into the property and stay there for at least a year. And usually it's until you save up enough down payment for the next property. Then you go and you buy your next property, again, usually as an owner-occupant with lower nothing down, you move into that property, you convert the previous one to a rental and you're able to repeat this until you have as many rentals as you want. So that's the nomad strategy. And we don't usually use hard money for doing that particular strategy, nor do we usually use it for doing house hacking. And house hacking is when you're renting out part of the property that you're living in. Whether you're buying a duplex and living in one half or you're renting out a single family home and renting out rooms or something like that, that's house hacking. So we don't typically use hard money for nomads or house hackers. What we do typically use hard money for is buying properties that need to be fixed up and then we're reselling very quickly, or we're doing like a buy, fix up, refi type of strategy, what, what some people would call the Burr strategy, the buy, rehab, rent, refi, and then repeat. So a lot of folks will use hard money to acquire properties that need a lot of work because in some of those cases, it is hard in order to get loans on properties that are in really rough shape. Um, In other cases, a lot of people use hard money as a easier to get short-term loan. A lot of times they're going to have really high interest rates compared to what you probably can get if you got more traditional conventional financing. But that's what they're going to use those for. Now, when you do hard money, the property is going to be very important to the lender. They're going to want to look at the property and make sure that they believe that this is going to be a, a, a valid, safe investment for them to make. Okay. there a lot of times they're going to want to see you buying the property at a very significant discount such that the loan to value is low enough where if they had to step in because you didn't finish the project or you stopped making payments on the loan if there are payments sometimes they're not uh, but if you if you are you're unable to make the progress you need and get the property sold that they can still step in and make a profit and they feel very very safe in doing so so a lot of times they're looking at it and they're trying to determine does the property support the um, the kind of like loan itself. Now, there are people out there that will tell you, hey look, you know, when you're doing these hard money loans, they're not looking at you as an individual. They're they're kind of like ignoring you as the borrower and they're really focused in on the property itself and that's the only criteria for being able to get the loan. While I have occasionally seen the rogue random rare hard money lender that will only look at the property, the overwhelming majority of the ones that I've had experience with do look at the borrower as well. So if you think, hey, look, I really wanna do this real estate investing, but I've got you know, you know, know, ugly credit or I'm unable to qualify for a loan otherwise, and I'm gonna go do this strategy where I'm using hard money in order to do these deals, you may be able to find someone who's willing to make a loan based solely on the strength of the property that you're finding. However, I think you're probably going to pay a premium for that. You know, you're know, you probably going to pay slightly higher rates and maybe even have to buy at a slightly bigger discount in order to make those numbers work. But I think more often than not, the hard money lender is also going to look at you and want to make sure that you are qualified and that you have appropriate resources and experience in order to be able to do those types of deals. Okay, So you can find hard money lenders, but I don't think that is the norm. I'll say it that way. So how much do you usually pay for hard money? So hard money rates are significantly higher than what you're going to see getting conventional financing, FHA financing, VA financing, Um, and and it's usually going to be much shorter in term. So what is the typical rate you might see in a hard money loan? Well, it varies quite a bit, um, and it varies a little bit based on deal flow in that marketplace and how competitive that marketplace is. Uh, So you will see a, a wide range. I think 10 to 15% is what we've been seeing for a while. Uh, is it very possible with the rise in interest rates that these rates are gonna be a little bit higher? Sure, absolutely. Could you find a hard money lender who has a slightly lower rate than that? Sure, I think that you could probably find one, especially if you're doing a bunch of deals and you're able to negotiate some really good terms with that particular uh, lender. Also, I want to point out that hard money lenders are in the business of loaning money. We're gonna talk about private money here in a second where private money people are people that are not usually in the business of making loans against real estate. Hard money lenders are in the business of making loans against real estate, and so they oftentimes have programs to do this. You may find someone who is either really flexible and likes to wheel and deal and structure their own terms on every deal independently, um, or someone who's brand new and doesn't have the full details of their own kind of like hard money loan programs all fleshed out, and they're willing to be flexible on how we structure it or how you structure it with them. But most of the time, hard money lenders are going to have static programs in place that are like, hey, here's our hard money loan program. Here's the property requirements. Here's the personal requirements for you to do it. And here are the rates for doing it. And a lot of times they'll have rates for you know if you've done your first X number of deals with them, or if you've done you know, more than X number of deals with them, sometimes they'll start giving you discounts on doing those. So a lot of times the rates for hard money are gonna be in that, I don't know, 10 to 15%, not unusual to see, 16, 17, 18, definitely seen those before. And in addition to the fee of the rate of the loan, they're typically going to charge you points. And a point is a percent of the loan amount that you're borrowing. So if you're going and you're getting a $100,000 loan and they're charging you two points, then they're charging you $2,000 in addition to the interest on the loan, in order to be able to get that loan, and I don't think it's unusual to see you know two, three, four points um, on those. There are some hard money lender companies out there that they are going and raising money from people in the general public, and the the people are the actual funders of the loan. That's where the money is coming from. But the person out there seeking the kind of investors to put in the money for the loans and then the the real estate investors who are buying the properties and they're putting them together, sometimes they will collect the points on the loan. You know, it's a relatively common way to set this up, although not the only way to set this up. But a lot of times they'll say, hey, look, you know, the 15% interest that we're charging you for the loan, the the background investor who actually has the money is the one coming in and giving us the money and they're getting paid the 15%. And then the three points or the four points or the five points or whatever, that is what I'm paid for going out there and putting you two together and coordinating this and overseeing it and managing the process. So that is a common way that we sometimes see hard money lenders set up uh, doing that. Now, these these rates can change over time. So you may go out there and be finding you know 12% today or 15% today or 17% today. And uh, you may find that over time, that these rates can vary up and down depending on supply and demand in your marketplace. Uh, hard money loans are often shorter term loans. They're typically not going to be a thirty year fixed rate financing type of situation. Although I've seen some hard money lenders offer like a a longer term, you know, sometimes like two or five year program where they're using um, hard money loans in order to fund sort of like a a, a shorter term, midterm, I guess it's more of a midterm rental property where you're able to acquire the property, rent it out for a year or two, let things kind of settle in season. And then you're able to kind of replace that loan with some type of longer term financing. But the overwhelming majority of the hard money loans, especially ones that are people are using for fix and flips or doing the burst strategy are going to be in this three to 12 month range. And for those of you that are doing the burst strategy, my understanding is that the, um, the exit financing requirements have changed recently. And now they are requiring that you actually season the property for a full year. So you'll need to have this hard money loan in place for 12 months to be able to get your kind of like 30-year fixed rate financing on the way out in most cases, unless you're getting creative and using some type of you know unusual portfolio financing where they're not requiring that in the midterm. Okay. So a lot of times they're going to be uh, shorter term loans, like three months on the really short side. Six months is really common from what I've seen, and I don't think it's unusual to have twelve months. You know, some of them will structure these things so they'll be like, "Hey, look, it's six months. Uh, it, you know, it's uh, it's fifteen percent and two points in order to get the loan uh, for the first six months. After that, if you want to extend for another six months, it's another point or two, and uh, you know, the the interest is still the same for that. And so they they may structure it where you have to pay additional points in order to extend your loan for an additional term. So be careful when you're planning this and understand. You know, especially if you're brand new and you don't really have a, a good understanding of the timeline for how long it's going to take for you to get your property fixed up on the market, marketed, sold, and closed. Because sometimes those things are independent, um, different time periods for a lot of those. And uh, some people don't estimate that time correctly. They think, uh, you know, I'll get this on the market. I'll get a contract within 30 days and I'll be closed within 30 more days. And so they can only give themselves 60 days to get the property marketed and sold and that's not always the case. Um, I'll, I'll say that that way. So, uh, maximum load to value. This can vary quite a bit for depending on who's which hard money lender you're using. Uh, one you hear pretty commonly is 70% of the after repaired value. So, if you think about what the property is going to be worth once you fix everything up a lot of times they will set their loan amount, the maximum amount that they're willing to loan you on that property using a hard money loan at some percentage of what the property will be worth after you fix it up. Not necessarily of what the purchase price is gonna be now. So if you're able to purchase the property for less than that 70% of what it's gonna be worth when it's repaired, a lot of times hard money loans can be nothing down. We're able to acquire the entire property with no down payment because you're buying it at such a big discount that you're able to acquire it below 70% of the loan to after repaired value, um, as an example. Now, this isn't set in stone, so it's not like every single hard money loan is always gonna be 70%. I've definitely seen ones lower than this, 65% is another pretty common one. I've also seen, especially in really hot, fastly appreciating markets, where some hard money lenders have gone as high as, I've seen 80%. Um, It's possible they had even more than that at different times, but realize that these maximum loan to values do vary um, they can be negotiable although if you are relatively new and you've never done one before, your negotiating strength is relatively weak um, unless you just happen to find you know the right guy who's kind of willing to do that um, to kind of negotiate with you. I'm gonna put myself on mute and uh, wipe my nose one second Okay, I'm back sorry I had the wipe my nose there. Okay. So we talked about that uh, maximum loan to value being in that sort of like, I don't know, 70%, 70, 65 to 75, I'd say is probably some of the more common numbers I've seen. Now, can you usually borrow the money to purchase the property plus the money to borrow for repairs? And in some cases, yes. But again, you have to buy the property at a low enough price where the lender is willing to include the money for the repairs. It's not like, you could buy the property for less than 70% ARV. And then in addition to that, they will loan you the extra 10% you need and hard costs in order to do the repairs on the property. No, it's usually that is the, the limit, you know, whatever they tell you is their maximum loan to value, it's going to be their limit and that would include repair money. So a lot of times for some investors where, you know, it's, it's hard to find these properties and they're, the numbers are tight, they're not able to buy, you know, these really deeply discounted, especially compared to the maximum loan to value. A lot of times, the real estate investor coming in is going to buy the property using some type of hard money loan, and then they're going to use some other source of money, sometimes the cash that they have their own, or in some cases, they're willing to. know, use a credit card or to borrow money in order to do the repairs on the property, knowing that they're gonna be reimbursed when the property closes at the end. So realize that you may do, you may need to do more than just the hard money loan to do these if you don't have any money of your own uh, to be able to access that. Some people will use like a combination of, you know, like their Home Depot credit card or a regular credit card to do some of the contractor stuff that they're unwilling or unable to do. So they'll kind of like mix and match and spread the, the load out all over, kind of across all those. However, if the hard money lender is going to um, loan you money to do some of the repairs, most of the time they're going to escrow the money for repairs. So it's not like you're going to buy the property and you know you're able to buy it at a big enough discount where they're also able to finance the repairs. And the repairs are, let's say, fifteen thousand dollars. It's not like the hard money lender in most cases. Some of them may, but in most cases they're not going to just give you an extra fifteen thousand dollars at closing that you're going to be able to just sort of like have and use for living expenses or whatever. No, they're going to actually say to you, okay, here you go. Um, we gave you the money to buy the property. Now go ahead and do this amount of work in stage one, and then we're going to review that that work was done and we will, we will release the money to pay for the work that was done. So they'll kind of like do it in stages, make sure that you got the work done. Then they will release the money for you to pay your contractors and, and buy your supplies and stuff. And then they'll say, okay, now do stage two work and they'll have all that done. And sometimes there's a stage three, or sometimes there's not. Like basically you have to, you have to like escrow the money. They set it aside in a special account for you and they hold on to it until you need that money, until you've proven that the work is done and they can release that money for you. So realize that's a pretty common thing when you're doing these hard money loans for doing the buy fix up. Um fix and flip or doing some type of buy, we have rent, refi, and repeat sort of strategy, the burst strategy. Okay. Let's see here. I think right now we are seeing, and this is very market dependent, but we're, typically we're seeing more money than deals right now. There's more money on the sidelines where they're looking for higher rates of return than there are deals to fund. And so that typically puts downward pressure on interest rates and loans and stuff like that. Again, this is very market specific. I'm sure in some markets, there are more deals than there are um, money out there. And with the rise in interest rates and the alternative things that people can invest in and get a good return on their money, maybe there is less money seeking these hard money loan situations than there was in the past. So I uh, realize that that could change over time as well. Now, another thing about hard money loans is that sometimes they could be used in conjunction with other financing. So for example, Let's say you're putting out you know, marketing in order to find deals and you find a seller who owns their property free and clear. They don't have a mortgage on their property at all. And you, you manage to uh, negotiate with them and you guys come to an agreement that if you put 15% down, they will actually owner finance the remaining balance. So one thing you could do is you could come in, you'd have to negotiate this, of course, but you could come in with a hard money loan uh, put 20% loan to value, first position, hard money loan on the property at whatever it is, 15% and two points, where then you're able to get 15% that you're going to give to the seller as the money that they require down in order to do the uh, the owner, um, owner financing type situation. And then you've actually pulled out 5% in this example um, as cash that you can use to Hold the property, make monthly payments while you're getting it occupied. Do any fix-up that is required in order to get the property where it needs to be. You know, do some marketing. Maybe even pull out in some rare cases a little bit of your profit when you acquire the property to kind of fund your marketing, uh, to reimburse you for the marketing paid in order to get the deal done. So you can use hard money loans as a way to put down payments in conjunction with maybe some other type of creative financing. Now. Are you going to be able to do what I just described if you're trying to do like conventional financing or FHA financing or VA financing or USDA financing? The answer is absolutely not. So the only way you're able to structure this where you're able to use a hard money loan in first position and have the seller be in second position is with some of these creative financing deals like owner financing or... um, Probably not even if you're doing subject to, although you guess you could get creative and structure these with subject to or wrap financing, but they're a little bit less obvious to do. So these are not going to be conventional financing combined with hard money loans in order to be able to do those. They're typically going to be some type of hard money loan in conjunction with some type of owner financing where the owner is going into second position because usually the hard money lender is not willing to go into second position. You may be able to find a rogue hard money lender who's willing to go in a second position as long as you're at a low enough loan to value, and they understand the risk that they're kind of going in, and they may charge you a much higher rate for doing that and higher points. But most of the time, the hard money lender wants to be in that first position when you're doing those loans. Okay, I'm going to talk very briefly about kind of a um, a side note related to hard money loans. And uh, Terry says a lot of hard money lenders don't allow a second position lead. Yep, I think that that is true, Terry. If the loan to value is low enough, though. There are some hard money lenders who would absolutely be willing to be in first position with a very low balance loan. For example, you have a you know, $200,000 property and you want to borrow $40,000 on that thing and you want to use a hard money loan to do that and the seller is in second position, I think a lot of hard money lenders would allow you to do that. Again, it's negotiated. Not everyone is going to do it exactly like that, but you're right. There are some that will not allow a second position, especially if it's a high second position, like you're borrowing 70% loan to value and they have a, you know, you put a 30% um, second there on there for the rest of the money. That's that's probably not going to fly. Okay, so let's, let's go off on this side note. So on the side note about, Real estate investors, some real estate investors, I'll say, and, I, I, and it's more than just like onesie, twosie. I think there's a good percentage of folks. Some real estate investors aspire to eventually be hard money lenders. They think to themselves, they look, eventually I want to get to the point where I've got a bunch of rental properties, but I've also have a lot of cash on hand and you know, being able to take the money I have and use that to make hard money loans and get you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15% return on my money. That seems like an attractive proposition for people. And I think a lot of them believe, and I think this is an incorrect belief, and I'll I'll tell you, I'll explain why here in a second. They incorrectly believe that, you know, if I've got a million dollars and I'm getting 12% on my money, then I'm getting $120,000 a year that I can live on if I'm getting 12% of my money and I'm doing hard money loans. What they fail to realize is a couple of things. is the utilization factor. If you think about the money that a hard money lender has, the full million dollars is probably not going to be completely deployed and invested at the same time all the time. So what it typically might look like is The hard money lender might say, okay, I found an investor who's doing a deal. I'm going to loan them $200,000 on this deal, but I still got $800,000 sitting somewhere else and I'm earning not the 12% on, okay? And then they go and they find another investor and the other investor says, okay, I need $300,000. They make a $300,000 loan and now they've got half of their million dollars out at that 12%. but then they still have this other half a million dollars that is not earning 12%. And so they're not really earning 12% on their full million at any given time. Then another one comes along and they have $200,000 more out. So they have 700 out, but then the first one gets paid back. And so they no longer have that 200,000 out. So now they only have 500,000. And then you know another investor comes along and they want 600,000, but they don't have 600,000 now because they only have $500,000 left. And so there's this problem of how much are you utilizing the $1 million or whatever you have as your kind of like investment portfolio for making these hard money loans? And most of the time, you don't have all of it out at all, all the time. Now, some people, some real estate investors will choose to use some type of home equity line of credit on an investment property or their owner-occupant property, and they will use that as a buffer. And instead of collecting the full 12%, you know, maybe they're paying depending on when they got the loan, three, four, five, six, seven 7% on the money that they're coming out with their HELOC, but then they're loaning it out at 12%. And so they're getting the spread, but they're not borrowing the money unless they actually are using it. So you don't have as much of, I guess it's a different utilization problem for doing that. So realize that if you're trying to do this hard money thing, if you're kind of aspiring to do that as a real estate investor, utilization is going to be a key factor. Getting and keeping all of your money out as much of the time as you possibly can is going to be an issue for a lot of folks. Um, and it is sometimes solved by doing like these home equity lines of credits where you're sourcing the funds from somewhere else. And then you're using that, or, you know, you're becoming like a hard money lender where you're going out and you're finding, you know, a pool of investors that have money that they want to invest. And then it's really not your direct problem. And I say direct because it is a problem for you that your clients don't have their money kind of out and invested all the time. And then you're kind of using you know, your uncle who has a million dollars you're saying, hey, uncle, you've got this home equity line of credit for a million dollars. Why don't we, you know, loan this money out to someone at, you know, 12% or 15%? And you're sort of like overseeing the deal and finding the real estate investors who need the money for the hard money loan. And maybe you're collecting the points and maybe you're participating in the percentage they're earning or not, but then your uncle's borrowing the money at, 5% 5% and he's getting 11% and you're getting one point, you know, like there's all these different ways to structure it where you're going out there and you're starting the business of doing this. I'll also point out, which we'll talk about here. when We talk about private lending is that if you're the one that's going out and you are coordinating, bringing in investors and making these loans on properties that you probably do need to be licensed. And the licensing may vary. I'm not an expert on licensing by any means, Um, I did talk to my own personal attorney and I chose to get licensed with the state of Colorado when I was raising private money. Um, It actually was a mortgage, it's a special license. It's a mortgage broker dealer license where we're generating, um, we're able to create security instruments, basically loans on properties secured by real estate, and you're finding people who want to borrow or loan the money for you. So uh, realize if you're doing this thing where you're doing hard money loans, you're becoming a hard money lender, you probably want to get licensed or at least have a consultation with an attorney to find out what the attorney recommends you get licensed, if at all, in your particular market. Okay, the second part about this, uh, investors aspiring to be hard money lenders, is this idea that you should live on that full interest. So you think, even if you could go loan a million dollars out and collect 12% per year, you know, $120,000, a lot of investors think, oh, I can live on that $120,000 and I only need this million dollars and I'm able to collect 12% per year return on that. And so really I'm getting $120,000 a year that I could live on. That's not how that works. If you've studied any type of retirement planning, um, especially folks in the, the financial independence retire early, the fire motion um, kind of like group of stuff, you'll hear about this concept of the Trinity study or the 4% rule. And what the 4% rule says, the 4% safe withdrawal rate rule, basically says that uh, if you have a certain amount of money invested, and typically they talk about investing in stocks or bonds or something like that, although it does apply to this as well. I'll explain that here in a second. But if you go and you actually have a million dollars invested somewhere else, it is In most cases, you are less likely, there's a low probability that you will run out of money if you take 4% out each year adjusted up for inflation. But you're not actually taking the full amount that the money is being used for. So, for example, if you have a million dollars you're investing in stocks and bonds, and that as a whole is earning you 8% per year, you're not taking 8% per year out. You're taking 4% per year out. And part of that is because sometimes money goes up and sometimes money goes down. Like the returns on the stock market sometimes are up, sometimes are down. More return in the bond market, sometimes up, sometimes it's down. And for the same reason, sometimes when you make investments in real estate, like as a hard money lender, some of these deals don't always go the way you want. Sometimes they go bad and you end up losing money on them. And so you cannot, should not think that you could take the full 12% and spend that. You should think of it as another amount of money that is invested in something and use the same. Whatever your version of safe withdrawal rate is, most cases going to be between three and five percent. I think that's the with four percent being the most common that we hear most. But four percent of the money coming out, not twelve. So if you have a hundred, you have a million dollars out there invested at twelve percent, and besides the utilization factor, maybe you're only taking four percent out safe withdrawal rate. So instead of you thinking you're getting one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, you really should only be taking out forty thousand dollars a year, adjusted up for inflation each year. That's the difference, and that's I think what a lot of folks who initially aspire to being a hard money lender don't necessarily realize. Okay? All right, With that being said, that is pretty much hard money. Um, for those that are on that uh, have questions about hard money, you're welcome to queue those up. I will cover them after I cover private financing. At least I will try to do it. I'm gonna cover private financing and then if you have any questions about that, please queue those up and I'll usually handle those at the end as well. Okay, so now let's talk about private financing. We've talked about hard money lenders. Hard money lenders are people who are in the business of making loans against real estate, Private financing are those that are not necessarily in the business of making loans against real estate like grandma. So you're at Thanksgiving dinner, you're talking to grandma about this new real estate investing thing you're doing, and you're kind of venting to grandma that you're having to pay 15% in order to get these hard money loans in order to buy these fix upper properties that you're kind of using. And grandma's like, that's crazy. I've got my money in CDs at the bank and I'm only earning 3%. And she's like, why don't I loan you the money and you could pay me 6% and it's a lot better than you paying someone else 15 and I make money too. And you're like, grandma, that sounds like a great plan. I'll go ahead and use you in order to do my loans in the future property and I don't have to go use this hard money lender anymore and it's cheaper for me and it's better for you. Okay. So that's the idea behind private financing. We don't typically use these for nomads or house hackers. If you're doing that nomad strategy or the house hacking strategy, most of the time, you're going to want to get these 30-year fixed rate, long-term financing loans from the bank to do those. You could use private financing, but most of the time, we're getting a bank to loan us money at these really great interest rates to do that. So not typically used for nomads or house hackers. It typically is, excuse me, let me uh, clear my throat one second. I'll mute myself again. Okay, I'm back. So usually we're talking to friends and family um, and sometimes other private lenders in order to get this type of private financing. So this is not like you're advertising to find private financing, although some people believe that it is. Um, So... Most of the time, this is going to be people that you know. You're going to be out in the street. You're going to be talking to them. They're going to say, what do you do? And you're going to tell them, you know, I, I flip properties. And they'll be like, oh, that's super interesting. What do you do here? And you you kind of explain to them, well, I go find these really, um these properties that need a lot of work. I usually bring in somebody who is, you know, looking to get a better return on their money and I use their money in order to, you know, buy the property and I pay them a really good return on their money and I do the fix up and then I sell the property to a family who really wants a a really good, nice property in their market and they buy that. And then I pay back the lender who did the money with some interest on it and they're really, really happy. And I help the family, I help the lender and I kind of do that. And as you describe this, they're either thinking to themselves, that's awesome. I would like to do the fix and flip myself or sometimes they're like, well, how much are you paying to do your loans? Because I've got money to invest. And that's how you tend to find, and it's oversimplification, but that can be a way for you to find these kind of like uh, private money loans for doing that. Private money financing typically is more flexible than banks and can be much faster to close. Imagine someone's got a million dollars sitting on the sideline and they want to get it out there and invested and you've got a deal and you need to close in three days. Well, it's a matter of them being able to go down to the bank, get the money in order to be able to have you wired to the uh, title company in order to close on it. So it's, it's faster to do these a lot of times. Uh, The relationship is extremely important when you're doing these private financing. It's really their trust with you is going to be a major factor in doing this. Unless they're sophisticated and they're analyzing the deal and underwriting the deal themselves, most of the time they're trusting that you are going to take care of them, that you're the expert, that you know what's going on, and that you've qualified this as a good deal, and that you personally are are guaranteeing the loan and are going to pay them back. Okay, So that's really why the relationship is still important there. So your, your financial statements Is probably still important. However, it may they may never ask. Okay, but they may ask you, hey, have you done these before? You know, you may see like the normal range of questions that someone who is skeptical skeptical about giving someone that they know at different levels. If it's grandma, she probably knows you pretty well. But you know, this could be you know a a coworker or something like that who you know but doesn't really know you super super well. So they may ask you some questions about your financial situation in order to qualify for that. What is the typical range? For private financing, it's all over the place. It's whatever you can negotiate. But I I think in that kind of like four to 8% range is probably in the ballpark, probably more toward the higher end with interest rates going up. Uh, And this can change over time, you know, as, as money becomes more expensive, people feel less compelled to move to do something like this when they can get you know five percent in the cd so if we see cds go up to five or six or seven percent then you know they may want a premium over what they can put in the cd and get as a return on that so the range can vary it's completely negotiated between you and the private financing person but you know typically in that i don't know four to eight percent range can be there and i think over time you find cheaper money right you go ask the first person they tell you 10 and maybe you use 10 on a deal But you're constantly looking for someone else to borrow the money. And when the the next person asks you, you kind of like, you know, how much are you paying? You tell them nine. And if you find someone who's willing to do nine, then you start using the nine person. You stop using the 10 person. And you kind of work your way down until you find more and more reasonable money over time. And some, some real estate investors will actually... They'll have money out on deals, especially if they're using private financing for more of like intermediate term deals instead of doing like three or six months or a year. Maybe they have got like a five-year term on their money. And if they've got lower money than what they currently have out, they will replace it and pay the old person back. So, for example, let's say you have a deal where you've got uh, money out and you you can have that money out for five years. And let's say it's at 7%. But then you're talking to someone else you're telling them, okay, you know, we're, we're probably loading in the 6.5% or 6% range if we're doing these hard money loans or the private money loans rather for the next five years. And they're like, well, I've got you know $500,000 I'd like to place right away. And you're like, okay, um, well, I can replace you. I can replace someone who have got who've got a little higher financing. Are you okay with that? And you kind of work it out between all of them. And you replace the higher 7% ones with now 6.5% or 6% money. And you're able to kind of like do that. Now, the other thing you could do I mean, it's, this is like part of the negotiation strategy if you decide this is a way you'd like to operate. But you could tell people, look, I've got you know half a million dollars out right now at 6%. Um, if you want me to place your money right away, it'd have to be good enough for me to be willing to pay off that 6% one and have your money out there. They may say, well, I'd be okay with five and a half as long as you're using it right now and you're gonna keep it out there for five years and so you negotiate the terms of whatever you're willing to do. And then you could kind of use the existing financing you have in order to improve your position and kind of do that money there. Okay, With that being said, I want to warn you about something, and I want you to understand why this can be potentially problematic and why we're specifically talking about it with private financing. So sometimes you will go find a private financing person who is wanting to loan you money where they don't need the money right away. They don't need the return right away. They're they're kind of like okay with getting a really good return, but they don't necessarily need the cash flow right now. So for example, one of the more common ones is someone has a self-directed retirement account where they want to loan you the money. Whether they get paid interest monthly or they get paid their interest all in one big lump sum at the end when you pay back the entire loan, they don't care because the amount of money in their account is not actively being used as they're kind of like growing this account there. So they don't really care if you're making monthly payments. So you're really putting their investment into the deal and their deal, the amount that you owe them is actually increasing over time. And there may be some advantages for you to do this. I'm not going to get into deal structuring, but there may be some advantages for you to do this for improving cash flow or how you're structuring this, where this is advantageous to you not having to make this monthly payment, uh, at least in the short term. And so they've got, let's call it, you know, let's say they did a smaller loan. Let's say they did a hundred thousand dollar loan on this and they're actually allowing their interest to accrue. So at the end of the year, let's say they're getting 6%. So at the end of the year, they owe, um, you owe them 106. They've earned $6,000 and a hundred thousand dollars that they have out. And then the next year you they earn you owe them 6% interest on the 106. So it's, you know, 1012 plus a little bit extra for the, the interest on that. So really over time, their balance is growing and that's, that's happening there. And then eventually you decide to replace the money that you owe them with another private lender and you go and you pay back this $100,000 original loan plus the $6,000 in interest plus the let's call it 7,000 interest in year two plus the $8,000 interest in three, year three so you're paying them back their initial investment plus the returns that they earn and you're doing that with money that you're bringing in from the outside from another investor coming in what does that sound like to you it should sound like a Ponzi scheme because you're actually paying off the previous investors, their initial investment, and the return that they've earned with new money coming in from another investor. So it should sound like a Ponzi scheme to you, because that's what a Ponzi scheme is, right? And then a, a person who's coming in, they're collecting money, and they're paying out the returns and stuff by another investor coming in. So you inadvertently you know, without, without really thinking you're doing some type of Ponzi scheme, you actually came in and you said, okay, we structured this great loan. You know, you're happy getting, you know, the amount of money you're borrowed uh, and some interest on it. And we're allowing that interest to accrue, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that by in of itself. And then over time, you're like, okay, now you want to get out of this loan and maybe it's as innocent as that, right? They call you and they're like, Hey, look, I, I finally need this money out. And you're like, Hey, no problem. I'll replace you with another one of my private lenders. And you come in and you bring in another private lender to pay off that $100,000 plus whatever they own. Now you've inadvertently kind of like formed this Ponzi scheme situation where you're paying off an old investor with a new investor and you're paying them their actual returns using that. So you got to be really, really careful that you don't structure this and get advice from an attorney to avoid this situation if it comes up for you. You know, if, if you're, and, and even even the idea of replacing the loan is kind of on this borderline edge of this Ponzi scheme, right? Like you're taking one investor's money and you're replacing it with another investor coming into the deal. So definitely talk to your attorney and make sure that you feel really comfortable with the way that you're structuring these and you're doing that. So that's what I wanted to warn you about. It's kind of like this, this concept of inadvertently setting up a Ponzi scheme to do this. And we don't usually see it as much with commercial lenders um, maybe the commercial lenders don't care. Maybe, you know, it probably is, now that I think about it, it probably is that the, the organizations that are going to come after you for doing these Ponzi schemes, they're trying to protect the public, not necessarily a commercial lender who is making these conventional FHA, VA loans, where if you do a refinance there, they're like sophisticated institutional type of people that uh, know about these loans, but someone who's a consumer on the street They're trying to protect the consumer. It's a consumer protection law and situation in that particular case. Okay, so I wanted to cover that. In case you never thought about it that way. If you decide, hey, I really want to do this real estate investing thing and this idea of going out there and finding friends and family, people that I know, contacts that I know, and raising money in order to be able to accelerate my ability to do deals, if you're going to get really serious about that, You may decide to go out and start talking to people in a more formal process, rather than just off the cuff at Thanksgiving dinner. You're like, hey, look, you know, um, I want to tell you a little bit more about you know what I've been doing, and you know, if if you want to, I'll sit down and I'll walk you through exactly how this all works. And maybe you form like a little PowerPoint presentation, or maybe put together a little PDF, or maybe you decide to go talk to them about you know like how your deals are structured and what the deal looks like that someone could come in and do. So eventually, if you plan on doing this more than just like a off the cuff, one time deal with Uncle Joe or grandma, and you decide you want to go out there and make this part of your business, you're probably going to have more, you're going to want to formalize this a little bit more. So I will share with you, Uh, for the folks that are kind of like got access to the recordings and stuff, I will share with you an old PDF, I'll show you, I'll kind of let you glance at it really quick, but I'll share with you an old PDF that you may want to use as sort of a a very rough sample starting point of what you may want to use as a baseline for creating your own private, private financing presentation there. Um, Now, now that I've said that, and you're going to start getting more serious about raising private money and going out there and doing this repeatedly... Um, I want to talk to you about just the tiniest bit because I'm definitely not qualified. I'm not an attorney, Uh, but I want to talk to you a little bit about soliciting and licensing. So if you are going out and you are soliciting people to make an investment and you're creating a security instrument, you're basically creating a security. Someone gives you money and they're relying on you to get a return from that. And you're having that secured by real estate in this particular example. So you're going and creating an investment for them where you're collecting money and you're advertising. You know, even if it's word of mouth advertising and talking to people about it, that is still a form of advertising, even if it's not printed. Uh, But if you're going to go and do that, you need to become aware of the licensing laws required and the advertising restrictions that you have by doing this type of solicitation. So this is sort of your... I'm not going to like teach you to go do this because I'm not an expert on it and I don't know different state's laws and stuff like that. But I will tell you, I did talk to my attorney when I was doing this more seriously and my attorney advised me to go get the license that I was required to do, which I told you in the state of Colorado, I don't know what it is in your other states. It's a mortgage broker dealer license. It's what it was. And there were definitely restrictions on what you can and cannot say and what you can and cannot advertise in order to do this. And so realize that this is not a Wild West, you can say or do whatever you want. You got to be really careful about promising returns. You got to be really careful about letting them know about the actual risks that there are for them to invest in this stuff. This is not a riskless investment, like really nothing is, as we found out recently by putting money in the bank with FDIC insurance. Um, but uh, you know th- this is not a riskless investment either and they should understand what the risks are. And you probably should have written risk disclosures prepared by an attorney and you probably should be licensed. You know, if you're, this is the weird thing, right? Like if you're gonna go do a single loan with grandma, do you need to be licensed? Maybe, probably. You know, but th- this is sort of like, you know, you, you speed once. Can you get in trouble for doing that? Sure. Are you likely to get in trouble for doing that, especially with grandma? Probably not, but realize that you know you may want to consider getting licenses license and learning the rules and regulations for doing this. This is not like a open world where you can do whatever you want there. That's kind of what I'm pointing out there. So I will share with you that you probably should get licensed. I went and got licensed with a mortgage broker dealer license with the division of securities. And then they have oversight in what you do. They want, they want to improve things. They want to review your things. They want to review your documents every once in a while. So they'll want to go and make sure that you're doing everything correct. All right. One other thing I'll point out to you I'm going to share with you the business card I had um, and what I thought was a good way to do it. But you'll want to definitely check with your attorney to make sure that this is in compliance and that you're allowed to do it. So this is a really old business card back from when I was doing this. I'm you know, not really raising money anymore. Um, but basically, it was like a typical I buy houses and apartments um, kind of thing in here. it have my contact information, my name, address, and website and stuff like that. I don't even think the website's up. So there's nothing really to go look at on there. Um, and then on the top here, This is the back of the business card besides the creepy kind of shadowy my face um, there and there. um, This was a – the way that I expressed to people that there were opportunities to invest is I disclosed my licensed um, situation. So this is sort of like a – what I would refer to as licensed disclosure marketing is probably a good way to describe it, right? You are disclosing to someone that you are licensed – and that this is a licensed activity. And by disclosing that you're licensed in a licensed activity, you imply that there's an opportunity there for some people, right? So licensing disclosure for private investors looking to earn returns from private real estate notes. So I'm giving them a notice telling them there's a licensing disclosure here, notice. And then it was my LLC name here, uh, the one that was the mortgage broker dealer licensee, um, is a mortgage broker dealer licensed by the Colorado Division of Securities to create notes paying interest secured by a deed of trust on real estate for private individuals seeking those investments. And then I had my personal name is a licensed mortgage sales representative for that thing. So I just disclosed to them through my licensing disclosure that I am licensed to do this in case you had an interest to do that. So that was sort of a a, a possible workaround for directly soliciting for these loans is that you actually advertise your licensing um, and that this is a licensed activity, and you can kind of get people there. Okay, so this is a kind of like really quick big picture overview. I realize you can't see all this stuff, but this is all of the things in my private lender program, kind of like PDF that I would hand out when I'd sit down with someone to talk to them about doing private loans. It's a twenty-five page document, and you can just kind of get a glance at what's going on there. But I will upload this um, to the place where I'm going to post the video recording. So if you are access to that, look for the link if you're watching the recording after the fact or whatever it is there. Okay. So that's all I got on private financing and the hard finance, hard money lending. If you've got questions, go ahead and cue those up, but I'm going to kind of go through the conclusion here. So many traditional long-term buy and hold real estate investors will choose to use some type of conventional financing, uh, then portfolio financing. So they're not going to deal with hard money lenders or private lenders at all. Many house hackers and nomads are going to choose to utilize like the low and nothing down financing options like VA loans and USDA and FHA and conventional loans. Those buying apartments of five plus units will likely be utilizing commercial financing, which we covered, I think, yesterday. However, some real estate investors will choose to utilize private financing and hard money. And those situations I talked about, like you're doing fix and flips or you're doing the burst strategy or you're you know, kind of like short-term financing things with uh, you know, private loans or something like that. So this is especially true for those that are doing that. So that is all I've got. Any final questions before we end for today? You guys have been really quiet. Besides Terry. All right. Doesn't look like there's any questions, so I'm going to call it. Thank you, everybody. We will see you tomorrow. You're very, very welcome, Terry. Uh, See you all tomorrow. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Grand Prairie is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Grand Prairie that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast.